So welcome to the Project Plenty podcast series, where we ask the question, what will 2030 look like? And we'll ask that question across a range of topics important to Queensland and to our church. It's a series of conversations that will help us enter into a whole of church discernment and planning exercise that we hope might give shape to our life in the next decade. Over the course of this series, we'll invite our guests to reflect on this question, what 2030 looks like from their perspective and ask what role the Uniting Church could play as this future approaches. My name's Scott Guyatt, and I'm glad that you can join us. So joining me today, Andy Root. Andy's from Luther Seminary in the US and in Australia for a whole series of uh, facilitated speaking conference kind of gigs around faith formation and pastoring and ministry in a secular age. Uh, Andy, thanks for joining us today. So Andy, you, you're writing a whole lot at the moment um, and doing a whole lot of work around this notion of a secular age. Faith Formation in a Secular Age, The Pastor in a Secular Age, two of the, the books that you've written recently. Can, can we just have a little kind of chat about what we mean by this word secular? Where does it, where does it come from in the context that you're writing in? What's, what's, what's behind it? Yeah, well, this will be a very interesting conversation for your listeners because yeah. I'm uh, going on 30 hours... Yeah. up oh, and you're just you're just and in. you're just That's you're right. just pulling me into this conversation <laughs> so whatever i say here uh first of all has to be taken with a great grain of salt and there could be a great like uh blooper reel of outtakes of yeah. things that happen so uh bear with me so yeah i mean I, I guess i need to preface that because to say and to ask the question what's secular is a really difficult question because we all have things in our mind that we think it means to live say in a secular age what i'm building off is actually the canadian philosopher charles taylor 87 year old uh philosopher uh taught at mcgill for a long time and he wrote a what i think is a really epic book I, i tell my own students that it's a book probably one of, if not the first philosophy book written in the 21st century, published okay. in 2007, that will, I think, be read in the 22nd century. Okay. I mean, I think it's one so of it's those. that kind of quality. I think so. I mean, I'm biased here, but I, sure. I think it has that quality. And what he's really trying to get at in that whole book, it, it's, a, it's slightly depressing, if not very depressing, because okay. it's a 700. Maybe I'll save that for another night to read. Right, right. It is a, it's a 700-page book, and he only wants to answer one question with it. And he only wants to talk about the Western world, the world that we all inherit, those of us who have some kind of connection back to the European old world. And he wants to say, why if you just rewind a short, essentially a short 500 years, and you find yourself somewhere in Europe, and you're in 1500, just a big round number, why is it nearly impossible to find anyone, say in Paris or in Amsterdam or in London, who doesn't believe in God? You just can't find someone who doesn't. And yet you go 500 years forward and just stop at another round number, stop at 2000, the year 2000, and it's actually going around all these cities of the Western world. It's quite the opposite. It's it's harder to find someone who does believe in God. So he wants to trace what he calls a philosophical genealogy. He wants to look at our cultural DNA that got us to this world where God becomes completely an option. An option. And like we can live next to someone next door who, for the most part, are living pretty normal lives. And maybe in some some of us would even say they're living, our neighbors who never go to church at all are living better lives than us. They seem like yeah. I mean I'm talking can, about my own neighbors. Yeah. They're better parents yeah. than I am. Yeah, they yeah. you know they seem to they seem to have a really strong marriage. Like everything is going quite well for them. So what kind of a society do we inherit that does yeah. that? So at the beginning of this book, and, and this is where you know you'll have to protect me from my own jet lag here. Sure. But um, we can he, edit this out. Right, right. It'll be fine. <laughs> you may have to edit the whole thing out. <laughs> um, but he tries to break this down where he says, you know, there's multiple ways you can think about what it means to live in 
to, to live in a secular age or what it means to be in a secular time. And this yeah. is what I think gets confusing because you have a view of secular and I have a view of secular yeah. and they're all kind of right, but we, we're not sure what part we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So he has this thing and he's just a classic philosopher. It, it's a little bit of a vocational hazard to start reading him because as a good philosopher, he makes up concepts and like okay. words. So you're like, really selling this. I mean, I'm really selling. I, I find it fascinating. <laughs> I mean, he'll say things like people don't have social theories. They have social imaginaries and, yeah, okay. And we live in a time of a nova effect, and we can talk about these words if you care. But he, he, he becomes shorthand for these concepts. Yeah. And so he thinks he does this with secular two, where he says there's secular one, secular two, and secular three. Okay. Uh, and so to give you just the short version of yeah. this, is he thinks we all, as people in the Western world, inherit a secular world. Uh, secular one, excuse me, yeah. a secular one concept. And he thinks that's this division that happens sometime after the Reformation. And once these things arrive, they're with us forevermore. And it really, secular one is a divide between the public and the private. And so we all are secular in that kind of sense, where we feel like, um, for the most part, religion is a private decision. Or we think that um, governments uh, shouldn't, well, we're all pretty freaked out by um all of us, even church-going people, are kind of freaked out by theocratic societies. You know, like um, we don't we we don't necessarily think that's a good thing, or um, we don't think that you know our our great most of us don't think our great hope is if we can just get um, well maybe it happens in America, but if we could just get a godly person who can put the Bible back at yeah. the center of society, then everything will be okay. So I actually find that really interesting yeah. because that that notion that that once we've made that shift, it's with us forever. I think right. Are the words that you just used. There might be a whole bunch of people out there in kind of church world who actually might want to wish that was not the case, that That's we right. can wind the clock back in some way. And that is what the church show project should be about. Um, but he's kind of saying that that's not really an option. Not, it would not be an option to continue to inherit the way we've lived in okay, the Western gotcha. world. So, um, I mean, I'll reference this in my presentations while I'm here because I'm just the kind of person who uses TV examples. Yeah. But the Hulu show, um, The Handmaid's Tale, if people yep. have seen yep. it, which really is an imagination to... Yeah demolish a secular one kind of world and get back to a more kind of, well, more to like something like the ancient regime um, where religion and even language is the same. So if you've seen that very horrifying dystopian movie, America has fallen and a new nation has arisen basically from fundamentalist religion called Gilead. And now even the way you talk, um, you know, everyone, even when they greet each other at the store, it's under his eye. May the Lord open. And And his point is that this is kind of the way we would talk in 1500. Um, that every part of the larger society was ingrained with kind of the holy liturgy. So that would be kind of almost, uh, I mean, my example of that would be almost a world without the secular. Yeah. So, so you're right. Like there, yeah, okay. there are people in, in a, um, and for instance, there's, there's movements that have been more kind of based in the UK and the States, but even theological movements that have kind of had this sense if we could get back to yeah. just the ancient, if we could just do the liturgy, yeah, say, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in a, a much more sophisticated way, but kind of like radical orthodoxy and, yeah. and some of the things that John Milbank has done out of the UK, which have been very sophisticated, really great theology, has been trying to get behind modernity a little bit. Okay. And, um, and Charles Taylor uh, affirms a lot of what he wants to do, but it, it thinks that it would be really hard to kind of get back to a a secular zero yeah. uh, kind of world. Yeah, so yeah. so that arrives and we inherit it. And yeah. so even though we can look at it and think, well, gosh, this has given us some problems, uh, it's in our DNA too. Yeah. So that's, you. I mean, so that's here. So that's secular one. And then secular two gets more interesting, and especially in the States, because um, secular two is kind of the classic 
secularization theory, or probably the way people would talk about secular if you were just to ask them at a cafe here, which they would say, they would define it as living in the secular age means fewer and fewer people are going to church. You know, so young families walking by here right now and say, um, are you, what Sunday school do you bring your kids to? Then they look at you like, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's important. And so it really is a kind of view of the secular that's based a lot in kind of sociological theory where we do see even in a place like the United States, where we, we, we see the decline of numbers, yeah, um, yeah. and it's particularly in mainline yeah. denominations in the states, fewer fewer people are going to yeah, church. Yeah, yeah. So it is kind of interesting to think about America that way, because you could make an argument that America is the most secular one country yeah. that has ever been. Like in the constitutional yeah, yeah. documents, it's yeah. to keep... Yep. You know, church and church state, and state se- separate, yep. but because it's the most secular one, you know, this, you know, I'm on jet lag here, so no, hopefully, no, no, no. You're, hopefully yeah, your yeah, your yeah. Uh, your yep. listeners are with me. Because it's the most secular one country, yep. it uh, it allowed it to be the least secular too. Yeah. So like compared to the UK, compared yeah. to Australia, compared yep. to New Zealand, more people. Well, the great example of this is when sociologists interview Americans, um, as I say, interview Australians, and yep. say. They'll, they'll ask them, did you go to church last week? Yeah. Americans are known to notoriously lie. Okay. And lie in favor of going to church. Of course. Yes, I did. Where, yes, I did go to church last week. Like continental yeah. Europeans, people yeah, in the yeah. UK, people in Australia, when they're asked by sociologists, yeah. did you go to church? They will lie too. So it's not, a, it's not morally better. But they will lie that they go to church less yes. than they actually yeah. do. Yeah. Um, so you just see a very different cultural imagination yeah, yeah, out yeah. there. So you can make an argument that America, because it was the most secular one country, such a deep separation between the yeah, public yeah. realm yeah. and the private religious realm, yeah. it created a space for church to be an important kind of grassroots thing. So yeah. every American president has to say, even Donald Trump, yeah. my favorite book is the Bible yeah, yeah, or God bless yeah. America all the time because yeah. it's code that says I'm it's one of you. I am just. I may yeah. come from a multi-millionaire family, but I'm just a regular folk from Texas, a Texas ranch. You know, you, you kind of make <laughs> this kind of assertion. Not what that I just went country. to Yale and, you know, yeah, yeah, my yeah. dad owns a private jet. I used to own the Texas Ranger baseball team, yeah. but I'm just a regular just a, guy yeah. with a ranch Super that just hymns. loves the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, yeah. so... Uh, we get a little bit of that here as well. Sure, uh, yeah. But not um, quite the same. Quite yeah. The same. So, so, so that's this kind of secular two senses that fewer, fewer people are going to church. Now, most people, I would imagine, I would imagine in the Uniting Church who are listening to this, but for sure in like my country, that our, our leading denominations are thinking about what's the next 30 yeah. years. Yeah. We're almost always captivated by the secular two issue. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the example in my country is just our notoriously awful healthcare system. Like we just know as a denomination yeah. that if we, if we lose another eight to 10% of members, yeah. we will not have a block enough to be able to buy health insurance for our clergy at a rate that will make us competitive. Yeah, and yeah. if those insurance premiums go way up, yeah. we have a big problem. Yeah. So a secular two loss becomes a huge issue for denominational structures. But Taylor's point in that whole book is to say, that's not the real issue. Okay. The real issue and what it really means for him to live in a secular age yeah. is what he calls secular three. In secular three, is essentially this idea that, um, or this reality, or this feel, it's probably a better way of saying it, that all of our faiths, uh, whether we are a believer or not, are fragilized. Okay. Belief just becomes very fragile. Yeah. Like we were just kind of insinuating yeah. that you know your neighbor is living a relatively good life. Yeah. They don't believe any of this. Yeah, yeah. Um, they don't go, they haven't been to a church 
maybe three Christmases ago they showed up at Christmas, yeah, but yeah. they haven't been there. Yeah. So his point is that we all live with a kind of fragilized faith. And what makes Taylor so fascinating to me is he says, listen, if you're a believer in the Western world, you can't escape doubt. All of our faiths are fragilized. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you're not a deeply committed yeah. believer, but you are really aware you could be living another life without this. Yeah. If you were if you were living in Paris in the 12th century, you could never even it's imagine you could live yeah. another kind of life. Yeah. You'd be overtaken by demons, or you'd, yeah. you you wouldn't even know how to talk. You you would have no kind of way there to live no your life. There was no alternative. There was no alternative. Yeah. yeah. And um, but now we have the sense that you could live. It's, yeah. it's fragilized. But what's fascinating about him is he says that even if you don't believe. So he says, every believer has to doubt in this age. But then he says this, which I find so fascinating. He says, even in this kind of secular age, every doubter, every non-believer sometimes believes. Okay. So even non-belief becomes yeah, fragilized. Yeah. Yeah. So your neighbor who's next door across the, the yeah, fence yeah. at a barbecue or whatever, yeah, yeah. Um, or playing footy or w- yeah. whatever you Australians do across yeah, the fence, yeah. um, we drink Bud Light, uh, that you would, uh, you know, they, they, they would say, listen, man, like, this is just... This is just the random universe. Yeah. There's no meaning in it. Yeah. There's nothing. You just live and you die. And you try to be a good person while you do it. That's all it is. Well, that person's deeply held belief that there is no reason to believe anything yeah. sometimes gets fragilized too. Yeah. Gotcha. Like when their first child was born. Yeah. And they held that baby and they thought, ooh, yeah. maybe there's something bigger. Yeah. Or they go to a concert and they hear, yeah. I don't know, maybe it's a piece of Bach or maybe it's you 2 play a, a yeah. track from you know, from yeah. Joshua Tree, yeah, yeah, and yeah. all of a sudden they're overwhelmed yeah. with something, or they go to their grandmother's funeral, yeah, yeah. and all yeah. the, you know, so even their doubt becomes fragilized. fragilized. So what it means to live in this kind of secular age is that every belief system becomes fragile, yeah. and that doesn't mean it becomes fragile. Shouldn't be equated as bad or yeah. less than. It just means there's no way to live in this kind. Of, the kind of world we inherit yeah. is one where our belief systems are quite fragile. Yeah. And unless something radically changes, um, that going 30 years from now is that what it will mean to kind of be leading religious institutions, what it will mean to be doing faith formation with with young people, will be always doing it around fragilized faith. That's one of the, I guess one of the questions I'd I'd love to kind of explore a little bit with you is that it would be really easy to spend all that time talking about the relationship between the church and the wider society in this context. But I'm also interested in what's happening inside the church. And you, you kind of hinting at it there, the way faith is formed or the way, you know, none of us live in a vacuum. So, you know, all of us, faithful people or not, um, are, are kind of living in this society that, that we're pointing at. And so I'm really curious about what that does for behaviour and relationships and, and kind of faith faithfulness inside the church as well as relationship between church and the world. Does that, does that question even make sense? Yeah, it, it, it does. And I'll, and I'll try to my best to answer it and then you can redirect <laughs> me and say, well, no, that's not really what I meant. But I think one of the things that I, I am um, convinced on, I think, and, and, and this will sound up maybe a little bit frightening at, at first articulation. Frightening's okay. Yeah, okay. Um, Frightening's okay. Uh, but in many ways, what I think it does mean, and even inside the church, is there needs to be some kind of radical sense of honesty. And um, for me, particularly in my own kind of theological project inside of, of doing this kind of cultural philosophy, is that things like testimony, storytelling, confession become really important pieces. Yeah. That, that the church, um, that 
doctrine and dogma becomes really important for me, particularly as a theologian. Those are important things, but they, we always we can't divorce those from narrative and story themselves. Like what makes doctrine doctrine is that's embedded in communities who tried to live this out. That say the Nicene Confession um, is why that's such an, a significant significant thing. Is not because Alexander and Athanasius and then the Cappadocians got together and thought we need to come up with some rules yeah. here and put this in yeah. place, but they were really trying to figure out what does it mean to be living a human life. Yeah. What does it mean to make sense of the fact that we pray for one another and new life comes upon them. And so there is a deep kind of sense of always doctrine and dogma being embedded in people's stories. So moving forward, I think the church has to be a place that's okay with people articulating the depth of their stories. And that not always being easily kind of pinned down and saying, well, that's what this means, but that we become these communities that interpret this. So one of the things, maybe this is the more scary part, is I think I'm convinced with Taylor on this that one of the faithful ways to live moving forward is that belief always becomes belief again because it's always embedded in doubt. And there is this deep sense that we are on a journey. And I think this is one of the problems, at least I feel like, with mainline Christianity in the United States is that we become so consumed with the secular two issue. How do we keep the lights on? Yeah. How, do we, how do we get more members? How do we keep our kids from departing at you know, 14 or 18 or whatever? How do we get more young adults? My gosh, yeah. you know, like the yeah. young adults are like, you know. Um, so you're talking about the church in the U.S. or in Australia? Yeah, yeah, right. like, listen, I mean, in some ways, this is what yeah, happens across question. the West. Yeah. yeah. And so we get so kind of, I guess, just linked to thinking of these people as resources that we, we miss the fact that what the church, I think, needs to do with people is be, be on a journey with them, of figuring, what, what does it mean to live a human life? Where is God in this? What are those moments when your, your faith became fragilized? Or were those moments where you found, even in your doubt, you could believe again? Yeah. In narrating those experiences, and then for um, both theological leaders as well as kind of clergy to give, to start telling those stories inside a biblical narrative yeah. and inside the biblical story. And, yeah. and that takes, a, I think, a different, even a different way we educate yeah. clergy it's than we have before. skill set even. Right. Yeah. And so you're leading a community interpreting yeah. what, what, is it, what does it mean. And, and in many ways, bearing the fragility. And now, I mean, I come from a, a theological perspective that's fairly embedded in this early kind of Protestant perspective or, um, you know, what the, the Canadian... Um, theologian and, and the German theolo- uh, uh, theologian uh, Douglas John Hall and then Jürgen Moltmann called the thin tradition, this idea of the theology of the cross, that, that this God comes to us in the opposite. And in many ways, this God who comes to us in the crucified Christ comes fragilized yeah. and um, comes in, in many ways wrapped in doubt or wrapped, as Paul would say, is that shouldn't be a God. And yet, nevertheless, this one crucified becomes God. So there, there opens up, and for those theologians, that, that becomes a place where not only do we find something that galvanizes us as a community, but it's actually the place where the living Christ becomes present. So it becomes a, a place where we share in each other's narratives of fragilization becomes an actual place where we confess that Jesus Christ is amongst us. So there's this kind of interesting duality that we have not done a good job of holding together, um, and we've actually fallen from in, into one ugly ditch or the other, which is we have to hold doubt as an important thing, yeah. but always inside a deep confession of Jesus Christ meeting us yeah. in that. Yeah. So there's both this, um, which I, to me is becomes this kind of new, not new maybe, but a, a way of thinking of a kind of sacramental reality. Because I think that is something that modernity does to us, yeah. is it, it and this is one of the made-up Taylor words, is that we then inherit what he calls the, an imminent frame. 
I guess, opposed to transcendent, yep. where like our ancestors, yeah, like if something weird happens, that could be yeah, yeah. a demon, that could that be could God be speaking legit. to yep. us, right? Yep. Like now we think, well, that's probably a psychological issue, yeah. or you were yeah. confused, yeah. It's or medical, there, yeah. right? There's there, we have It'll some be explainable in some way, right? We have yeah. some natural material answer for that. So there is a, there is kind of a sense inside the imminent frame where the sacramental sacramental disposition of just reality itself gets completely sucked out and this becomes the burden most modern people bear then is that um, we're safe we're safer in some sense we're I'm actually quite happy and find it again that when my nearly 15 year old son is acting like a complete bleep which happens quite often as any parent with you know teenagers will know (laughs) yes absolutely Um, you know I usually run to natural material answers not transcendent ones like I don't tend to think like oh the yeah. devil could be in our house. Yeah. You know, we need to run a ritual over him or something, yeah, yeah, yeah. or we need to call yeah. the Catholic priest yeah. and have him do something. Here and, right, yeah. right. I usually tend to think a natural material uh, answer like, oh, he didn't get enough sleep last yeah. night, or yeah. he's just hungry, yeah, yeah, or this yeah. is just hormones. Yeah. So there's a very different kind of conception yeah. of that. So what happens then is the kind of trans, the, the transcendent um, uh, sacramental kind of reality gets sucked out of that. And in many ways, that's a gain for us, yeah. to be quite honest. Yeah. I mean, I'll put it on tape yeah. here i'd rather yeah. live in that world yeah. than yeah. being freaked oh, out like luther was with you. that there's a demon around every yeah. corner but the problem with it and this is kind of taylor's point is um we can get struck then by a malaise of meaninglessness so what what is yeah, the point yeah. of life yeah. is there any meaning to it yeah. like we almost get struck by essential boredom where we're living in it i mean we're in and is this down like next to the river here yeah, in brisbane south bank. brisbane yeah south, bank. south yeah. bank it's beautiful yeah it's absolutely beautiful, but I've been kind of moved into this culture not to actually see this as God's handiwork, yeah. to see that there's something beautiful here. Yeah. Like, I almost can flatten this down to, well, that's yeah. great, but, yeah. you know, but if so I get what? a bad text or whatever, yeah, yeah. all of a sudden that's what matters, and this yeah. is just, yeah. it's just beautiful because maybe yes. I've been on an airplane too long or whatever. <laughs> so there, we, the world doesn't speak to us anymore, yeah, yeah, and so we can way. kind of take that malaise. So I do think, it's, you know, thinking 30 years ahead, mm. We do have to find a way to help our people inherit, then, again, a sacramental world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think we can just run back pre-1500 yeah, and say, like, this u- this Eucharist, which I'm a, I'm, I'm a deep believer in, in communion in the Eucharist, but um, saying, like, it just, it's hard for people to imagine um, that coming to our yeah. church, like, this is the real body of yeah. Christ. And yeah. there's all sorts of historical examples of this, of, you know, like yeah. in England in the 13th, 14th century, like, people... It was church law. You had to take communion twice a year. You had to take two Eucharists twice a year. And they usually took it twice a year. Twice a year. Because it was frightening. Yeah. I mean, it would be similar today of someone coming to your office and saying, guess what's happening tomorrow? I'm so excited about this. I have to have my appendix taken out. It's going to be so awesome. Like if someone was jumping around and excited about that, you would think that person was nuts. Yeah. They were crazy. But you do it because it's better than the alternative, which is to have your appendix explode and you die. And that's kind of how people felt about the Eucharist. Okay. It's better to take it a couple times a year and yeah, save yeah. your soul from damnation, yep. even though it's frightening. You're yeah. going to take this holy thing into you, yeah. and it could destroy you. People just don't think that way no. at all. Yeah. But because they don't, then they can also be thrust into a malaise of yeah. what means anything at all. What does this mean? So we need to recover some kind of yeah, sacramentalism, yeah. but yeah. I don't think we can go back to yeah. this kind of being frightened yeah. by the Eucharist. But I do think narrative, relationship, yeah. and my own kind of novel theological construction is to think about ministry as a really deep thing and that ministry is not something that clergy do but those moments where we share in each other's humanity 
and then narrate those in a community becomes a deep experience, I think, where people feel taken up into something, where they feel encountered by something. Yeah. Um, and so moving 30 years from now, can we think of the church as um, a group of storytelling, journeying people who both receive from the world ministry, yeah. but also give, which I think is a profound really movement of who Jesus is for That's us, is that Jesus both gives and yeah. receives ministry. Jesus yeah. both has to be given ministry by the woman yeah. at the well, but then yeah. um, uh, he, he receives it and he gives yeah. it. And um, when we get in a secular too, like that's our issue, then it's only about how can we get more resources. So we have to be, we, we have to be a service provider who's yeah. giving it. But part of what I think the church needs to do is also receive yeah. ministry. Yeah. And so how do we receive the stories of others? Yeah. And, um, and so that's the kind of dynamic yeah, yeah. I think going forward. Yeah. Um, let me let me just uh, kind of one other thing I'll be interested to kind of have a chat about with you. I was reading an article that you'd written recently where you'd been talking to a young pastor and, and I'll just read this quote that I kind of pulled from the article. Um, Looking me in the eyes, he said, ultimately, I guess, I don't know what to do because I don't know how to talk to God, talk about God in a way that people sense and recognize. I'm not even sure if that's possible anymore. I mean, that, that kind of... There's, there's so much kind of angst or brokenness or something in that. Um, you know, and it kind of ties into what we've been talking about. But what, what do we say to our leaders, our pastors, our youth leaders, you know, about the, the, the kind of first next steps, you know, in this kind of world that we're inheriting? What are, what are the practical, you know, what do you say to that guy? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, obviously that's a story, yeah, yeah. a particular story in a particular place. But. Yeah. I, I wish I could tell you what I said to that guy. I wish I would have said, you know, <laughs> these three things and it changed his life. And uh, perfect. If you could just repeat those. Yes, right. And if I did, then, you know, I would just, there would be a pay button yeah, after listening right. exactly. to this podcast yeah. and you just click on it. you got to buy the book. I would, that's right. And the book cost <laughs> 300 American dollars. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think, but I do think that he enca encapsulates what a lot of us mm. kind of feel and what mm. I kind of call in my, my book, the, this kind of pastoral malaise. And it is this, this sense of it when you get trapped in that secular two kind of perspective, then yeah. the measure of what it means to be a good pastor, what yeah. it, maybe the measure of what it mean, means to be leading a synod or a denomination or whatever, yeah, yeah. is that you are... You're, there's growth becomes the thing that it's yeah. growing that in there um, it's a German uh, uh, a German sociologist calls this dynamic stabilization like the way modernity stabilizes itself yeah. is actual continued growth it's continued growth and the problem with that is is that it just means everything has to continue speeding yeah. up yeah. because this year's growth next year you have to yeah, yeah. go beyond that it's or an escalation or of. the institution isn't stabilized yeah. which is you know like not to turn this geopolitical or anything but it's no. kind of you know like the, the West hasn't had a war in yeah. over 100 years, and partly because we've all decided that the way our institutions will be stabilized is dynamically. Yeah. So it make, makes sense for us to have things like the EU and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and other trade agreements because we can all dynamically stabilize by continuing to grow our yeah. economies. Yeah. Well, then you get people pulling out of Europe, like Brexit, and you get Donald Trump basically giving a middle finger to European <laughs> allies. And, you know, not to sound all weird, but, you yeah. know, you, you start to get risks across Europe that weren't there. Yeah. But why weren't they there? Because we all had economic interests to keep yeah, to war keep, yeah. war down, which yeah. is a very unique yeah. thing across European history. Yeah. So, but when that gets imposed upon a pastor or a congregation, yeah. you you enter into a, a really, this is kind of where the third volume I'm, I'm getting at, is that, you know, we're at a time where we all know we need to change. Like, yeah. you know, you're talking 30 years, we need to yeah. change. Yeah. But we're going to have to do better, I, I fear, at least in the backdrop of my own country, which, you know, has all sorts of, I think, 
idolatrous realities embedded within it, especially in church life, um, is that if we don't have other kind of visions for what would make our our institutional structures, or we'll just say our congregations, um, essentially be moving towards the good, um, other than dynamic stabilization, then this moment where we all know we need change could end up being a problem. I mean, it could end up being an issue um, that this modern project has been all about speeding up and I'm I'm drawing on one of the the people this is a problem is you read someone like Charles Taylor and then you start reading people who wrote about Charles Taylor and I've I've, uh, become really engaged in this other thinker named uh, Hartmut Rosa the German sociologist who I referenced and he has this whole theory called accelerated modernity where he thinks what it actually means to be in a modern world is that everything just keeps speeding up yeah and so we just see exponentially. Yeah. And there's all sorts of... I mean, of, that just rings true, doesn't right, it? Right, yeah. And you read his yeah, stuff, and you're like, oh my theories gosh. and all sorts of things. Yes, yeah. right. And so, you know, he, you know, his whole point is, like, it's embedded within the algorithm of modernity, yeah. like yeah. the equation, you know, um, for instance, even in a research university, yeah. that, um, that, you know, K plus R, knowledge plus research equals research primed or research yeah. squared. The whole point, you know, and then, you know, it works economically. You don't invest money other than to make more money. And so that gets all transposed in our imagination. So we start to think about, well, here we are at a time where the church has to change. The problem with that is if we can't free ourselves from dynamic stabilization, then the only change is to go faster and faster. And his whole theory is to show us what actually happens when we continue to rev up and go faster and faster is it creates experiences of alienation. And what people become alienated from, that he's, and sometimes he's saying Marx was right, that our issue is that Western economic categories create alienation. But what he was wrong on is it's not just economics, that everything gets sped up, yeah. not just technology gets sped yeah. up, yep. social change yep. gets sped up, yep. pace of life, yep. this all gets sped up. Yep. And it alienates us from everything. Yeah. And yeah. so burnout becomes this huge phenomenon that people yeah. feel actually alienated from a living world that yeah. they feel i mean we depression is on the rise yeah. and so um he he makes his kind of number one best-selling book and in, in, uh, it's just come out in the uk in english in april and it's coming out in the states in um in october is this book called resonance where he thinks that the what we need is to get back people feeling this kind of resonant connection with the world, like the world is speaking to them. Yeah. And he's yeah. writing this as a sociologist, yeah. not as a theologian, but yeah. there's so many theological so overlays. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you're kind of history from Protestantism is that yeah. we really, you know, both Calvin and Luther believe they knew how God acted, yeah. that God spoke, yeah. that it was the word of God. And, yeah. you know, you just read even through the Old, Old Testament, and it's very clear that this is a speaking yeah. a speaking God. The American Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen says there's an old hymn that says, when I enter into the eternal silence of heaven and he, he writes he says that has to be a bunch of crap I mean, that's not how he actually says this but he says that has to be a bunch of crap because the god of the bible yeah. will never Stop shut up silent. this yeah. god just keeps talking and talking yeah, yeah, and talking yeah. and yet what modernity does to us is it makes the world a very muted place where people actually can feel deadened to yeah. it and so to think of the, the church not as communities that are trying to innovate and change yeah which will lead us into dynamic stabilization, but that churches are communities that it's not about relevance, but it's about resonance. Yeah, okay. So how do we help people yeah. find resonance w- with one another? And yeah. so I think this is part yeah. of the pastor's problem is he's yeah. like, you know what? I actually know what I'm doing when it's just about trying to build some kind of institutional vitality. Yeah. I don't know if I'm great at it, yeah. but, I, but I get it. But I, I get it. It makes sense. And you know, actually I'm better than yeah. 
60% of the people. Yeah. But when I get deeper to yeah. what my people really long for, and yeah. particularly how they're making sense of their lives, yeah. next to a bigger picture of how God is acting and moving in the world, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. So for me, I think the huge thing is that I mean, that was, this is a long way to get to an answer. Right. My question. This is what happens when you're, when you're on a, jet lag, people. It's an interesting um, way to get to an answer. Right, right, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Now you know next time I'm jet lag, <laughs> call me up, and I will just talk and talk and talk and talk. Um, poor people who are going to be at the thing tomorrow. Um, but that I, I, I think that th- this sounds very pious, but we have to get back to, with our people, but in the leadership too, imagining... In, in really wrestling with, but imagining and being um, interested in how this God acts in the world. How is this God really acting and moving? Yeah, yeah. And, and how do we make sense to that? And how do we, yeah. and how do we, this is why I said story is so important, yeah, yeah. that we need people to articulate stories of yeah. where this happened, where the, all of a yeah. sudden the world became alive and something spoke to them. Yeah. And then help them interpret that through the history yeah. of doctrine through yeah, the history yeah. uh, the, the church's history through through yeah. the biblical story of course like to be able to help interpret those phenomenon but we also need people who will say um you know god has been silent to me for years mm-hmm. my wife was diagnosed with cancer yeah and i prayed every day for her yeah and now yeah, it's been six months since yeah. she's been back yeah and i don't think i believe this anymore yeah. but some but for some reason i'm still here yeah um and I actually hear, and I hear you all pray, and I hear you sing these songs, and part of me is so angry at you. Yeah. And yet that becomes an invitation, too, to wrestle with yeah. who is this God and how does this, yeah. this God act. So yeah. it can sound pious, but you know, up in, inside of this accelerating world, yeah. there's something really phenomenal about yeah. asking the question again, yeah. who is this God and how does yeah. this God act? Yeah. Which is a very ancient yeah. question, um, but really an important one, I think. Yeah. And I think that's just about the perfect place to free you from this kind of moment of conversation in jet lag. So Andy Root is the uh, author, uh, the speaker, the theologian, the teacher. Uh, the two books of the project so far, um, Faith Formation in a Secular Age and The Pastor in a Secular Age. Uh, you can grab those books uh, wherever it is that you get good books from. Uh, AndrewRoot.org, I think, is the website. Is that that's right? That's right, yeah. I've got that right? That's right. Um, so check out uh, some of the articles and bits and pieces there. And if you hear this very quickly, you might catch Andy in Australia over the next couple of weeks thank you so much for the time for the yeah. conversation um, I'm going to free you to go and find a place to have a nap and or a coffee whichever way you need to go I, I need something yeah. so thanks for letting me ramble on and maybe people will at least have a dial on their podcast where they can slow <laughs> it down because I tend to just talk faster and faster and faster that's right listen at half speed, speed and we'll maybe make a little more sense beautiful thanks Andy